Good evening, everybody. This is Rich Duncan from Inkheist, and tonight I'm joined by my co-hosts Shane Douglas Keene and Laurel Hightower. And tonight we're excited to have Christopher Golden on the show, the author of Arat, um, the new novel coming out in a couple of days here, Red Hands, uh, Wildwood Road of Saints and Shadows, The Ferryman, and a bunch of other books. Um, and we're really excited to have you on tonight, Chris. And, uh, you know, how's everything going for you? Uh, hey, listen, you know what? For uh, for plague times, everything's going great. <laughs> I'm, I have yet to catch it. Uh, and, uh, you know, which is strange because I've actually had many, many family members uh, get sick with COVID. Fortunately, all of them, knock on wood, have uh, have come out of it. And um, but it is scary as hell. Wow, I'm glad everybody's come out of it okay that i mean that's that's really scary for having you know multiple family members end up with oh, it yeah my brother and his wife and their son uh my wife's sister and her daughter uh have all had it so um it's pretty bad it is um i've had a lot of friends who have either got it or have family members who got it um i've dodged that bullet so far but it's 2020 still so i'm not making any claims yeah exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah so so I figure that, you know, I'm doing all right. It's December, you know, it's, it's, it's all good. Cruising into the end of the year, trying to stay safe. Hey, here's an interesting piece of nostalgia before we get rolling here, at least to me. Um, and I won't go deep into this book because it's an older one, but you wrote a collection called uh, Tell My Sorrow to the Stones or tell my sorrows to the stones. Um, and I wrote a very, very, very bad poem based on that title. Because um, <laughs> I really dug the title. Um, well, but, I stole it uh, from Shakespeare, so I can't take credit. Yes, I know. I looked it up. I Googled it. <laughs> it's like, oh, fuck, I can only use the title. But... <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that uh, actually kind of got me back into writing poetry after about a seven or eight year hiatus. So, yeah, that was uh, like I said, it was bad, but it was good for that. So. Excellent. Well, I appreciate it. I, I um, you know, it's weird because I've done I've done two short story collections and I feel like I'm due for a third one. And um, and it's really interesting to look at them because you can really sort of track. I think writers buy their short story if they write short stories. You can kind of track them in the, in a in a way, um, because I feel like my first one, The Secret Facts of Things, was like everything I had ever written that was shorter than a novel up until that point. Um, and a lot of it is not very good, you know. So there are stories in there that are that I think are good that I'm still you know happy with, but a lot of it is like eh. You know, that was all right. It was a good try, kid. Um, whereas Tell My Sorrows to the Stones, I think, you know, again, there are stories in there I'm not in love with, but but a much higher percentage of stories that I really like. And now at some point I'm going to have to do a third collection. And there are a few things that should go into that third collection that I'm like, yeah, but I kind of feel like I want to graduate <laughs> from whatever this weird <laughs> school is. I would like to graduate from it and therefore like 
do I include those few stories that I'm like, not really kind of up to par with the other stuff I would include. Um, so yeah, it's always, it's always interesting, but I know, sorry, tangent. I'm, I'm tangent boy. So, uh, we are all about tangents. We love tangents. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. the more talkative, the better, uh, we're all in agreement that you need to write another fucking collection soon, but oh, it's up to you what you put yeah. in it. <laughs> but I, I do think that's an interesting question, though, with the with respect to putting those together. I'd never heard that pose. But given that they are, you know, usually stretched over source material from like several years, that's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it, there are sort of a summation, Laurel. Right. I mean, it's like um, it, they really are kind of a map of a certain period in a writer's life, unless you're like Joe Lansdale, who who's done so many collections and so many of them are, and this is not a, Joe is one of the, my favorite writers my entire life. Um, so it's not a criticism. It's just like, you can't gauge by Joe because his collections tend to be really kind of like, uh, um, I don't want to say they're haphazardly put together, but they're sort of a mishmash of like things from different eras of his career often, you know, so you might have a new collection that is, you know, his favorite stories that have Jesus in them or whatever they might be. <laughs> so many short stories and his collections are not sort of necessarily some kind of chronological presentation of here's all the shit that I did in a given period of my career, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like um, if you've been reading Joe for decades, you can kind of see when you're reading a collection. This is probably from this era. This is probably exactly. from around here. But otherwise, if you haven't, you're just reading some really good stories and you don't have a clue where they got thrown in from. Right. So do you, when, when you look at that, when you go to put them together, do you, do you tend to try to find any running theme in them or, you know, or do you just tend to include everything that you, that's eligible for a certain stretch of time? I, you know, the thing is I am not by nature a short story writer. Um, I think by nature, when it comes to prose, at least I'm a novelist. That's just the way my brain works. And I actually don't think, you know, I still think I'm, I'm, you know, uh, my batting average is not the best when it comes to short stories, but I've written a bunch that I actually do really like. Um, but I've not written enough stories where I could feel like, okay, I'm going to do a theme collection of all my stories about the, the sea. Although I've done a bunch of stories that revolve around the ocean or are connected to it in some way, certainly not enough to do a collection. Maybe if I'm lived to be in my like mid seventies or something, that'll happen. Um, but so they do tend to be sort of a summation of a period, you know? Um, but for instance, like I wrote this novella, um, I did this book, um, I don't know, a number of years ago with, um, David Liss and Kelly Armstrong and Jonathan Mayberry called Four Summoner's Tales. And I did a novella in that book called Pipers. And, you know, Pipers is a good read, but I feel like it's not as well written as I wish it had been. Um, And maybe I don't have perspective because I haven't gone back and looked at it again, but it's just in my head, that's what I think about it. And so I have this thing about like, well, if I'm going to, well, when I do this next collection, whatever it's going to be, do I include that? You know, so I don't think I have enough perspective on it. I think I need, I think I need to put together the collection as it would be if I included everything that ought to be in it and then share it with a few people and say, okay, 
tell me what in this book you feel like isn't up to snuff and I should pull. Um, I think that's the only way to go about it now because, you know, historically I've just been like, well, I don't write enough short stories to be that picky about including <laughs> the crappy ones. Um, but now I feel like I really should be a little bit more demanding of myself. Mm-hmm. And that, that's kind of interesting, Chris. Um, I know you said that, you know, you consider yourself a novelist, so you don't really consider yourself a short story writer. And I know a lot of times, you know, the story dictates how long, you know, it's going to be. But I was just curious, you know, if you kind of think of yourself more as a novelist, you know, what kind of inspires you if you know going in that, like, this is going to be a short story to kind of, you know, either try and work in that format or if it's just kind of like whenever the inspiration strikes you? Um, It's usually, uh, you know, sort of, you know, I have an ideas file like most writers I think do. And I'll come up with an idea and I'll think, um, though, that's a short story idea. And I'll keep that in the file. Sometimes when I'm coming up with novel ideas or when I'm looking back at the ideas that I've written down, I'll be like, oh, actually, that's not really a short story. That really could be a novella or a novel. Um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, there, there are things, there's one idea that I have that I want to write as a, as a, a novella. And I have to sort of work up to it. Um, and every time I think about it, I think, oh, you know, I, I bet you somebody would buy that if I wrote it as a full length novel. Um, but at the same time, I think, well, but it's not a novel. It doesn't deserve to be a novel. There's not enough. There's not enough to do in it. And novella feels like exactly the right length for this idea. Um, whereas short story wise, you know, I look at the like I have this idea right now. I, I, so basically what happens is I tend to write short stories when I'm asked and I have time. So uh, I, I rarely have had the opportunity to just sit down and write a short story on a whim because I'm usually under a bunch of deadlines because I don't. Uh, you know, writing is so I'm in that in that gray area of writers where um, I think that if writing is not your full time job, uh, you can say, I want to write this story. And on a whim, you have this idea and you go write the story and then you submit it around because you're not relying on the income to pay your bills. And then also, if you're successful enough to be uh, a writer who has leisure time. You know what I mean? If you're making like a ton of money as a writer, then you can do whatever the hell you want. But if you're in this sort of gray area where I live, uh, you know, you kind of, you know, you make time for short stories because somebody said, hey, I have this anthology and it's going to be it's a topic that I think you really enjoy. And, you know, like Ellen Datlow asked me if she was doing this um, anthology called The Devil in the Deep. And as I mentioned earlier, I love writing horror stories surrounding the ocean. And uh, and I was like, yes, I'm in 100 percent on that. I will make time to do that. So um, I owe um, an editor a story by the end of this month. And I have several ideas that I'm sort of toying with. Um, and the one that I really want to write, and I think I'm starting it on Monday. The one that I'm, I really want to write is. Um, <laughs> it's really weird. Let me just say this. It's really weird. And it could come out really fucking stupid. And 
And I'm, I'm worried about that. And then so my thought, I'm like, okay, do I take the time to write this story that could come out really stupid and then risk it being really stupid and having to write a second story and then saving the really fucking stupid story from my crypt, my collection. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so that's kind of that, like, but I think I feel like I'm old and I'm 53 years old. I've been doing this for 26 years full time more. What am I saying? Yeah, no, 26 years full time uh, this year. Is that right? 28 years. Oh, my God. My math is terrible. 28 years as a full time writer as of this year. And I'm like, I think I've reached the point where I can just jump in the deep end and just say, yeah, that idea could be an absolute, complete and total shit show. But I really like the idea and I'm going to write it. So I support that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Um, Because, you know, I've read a couple stories and then, you know, either have heard the author, you know, kind of describe, you know, like, oh, I decided to take a chance with this one and I wasn't sure. And I find that like a lot of times, I don't know if it's because, you know, they just kind of embrace that, like, you know, this could be terrible, but I'm just going to go for it. And like, maybe they were extra excited about it, or maybe it was just that little element of like weirdness. But I've always found that those stories, at least for me, like if I'm reading either an anthology or a collection, you know, they tend to resonate with me a lot more. And like I said, I don't know if it's because like after hearing the writer kind of talk about how it was, you know, something different and challenging, but that's always been my perspective as a reader is like when I've read a story by an author that, you know, I really like, and I can tell it's something that's kind of a departure that they really put themselves out there. I feel like it kind of carries a little bit of extra weight with it. I do feel like, you know, years ago I was at um, a dragon con in Atlanta and Clive Barker was there. um, And I went to the sort of talk that he gave and um, it was I was pretty young, actually, at that point, and uh, he talked just about trusting your imagination and about trusting the crazy shit that your brain coughs up, you know, and yes. um, and because of, of going and listening to him, I wrote this novel, Strangewood, which was like my fourth adult novel, I think, something like that, and, um, and so... I do feel like sometimes you just do have to dive in and, and, and to you know, take the risk to do the thing that seems crazy um, or seems like you're just uh, you've, you're grabbing the idea and running with it. Um, and, and again, I mean, you know, like, my feeling is this, even if it doesn't come out, you know, as uh, the greatest thing you've ever done, at least it'll be different from everything else in the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Well, and a lot of times, I mean, if you were to distill down a lot of story ideas of some of some of the most amazing short stories that, you know, that are really striking and really stick with you. If you distill them down to a couple sentence pitch, you would be like, wow, that is a really messed up story idea. I don't know where that would go. Yeah. You know, and it's it's in it's in the hands of whoever's writing it. I, I love messed up short story ideas. <laughs> so I, <laughs> yeah. I vote for that one. Well, it is this like, you know, look. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not going to say the best because I think the best is a weird, um, I don't know, it's a strange qualifier. But to me, the most memorable horror short story I think I've ever read 
is Clive Barker's In the Hills, the Cities. Mm-hmm. And just like you said, Laurel, if you if you told somebody, yeah, I'm writing this story about these two cities that have been like, you know, the Hatfields and McCoys, they have a grudge against each other, you know, for hundreds of years. And so, you know, every X number of years, they get together in the hills above the cities and they they like tie themselves together and they make themselves into two gigantic, like uh, enormous warrior figures and they fight each other. You know, like, you know, anybody you're telling that story to would be like, what are you smoking? (laughs) That's, you know, that's really dumb. And yet it's the greatest horror story it is so great and um you know so i just feel like you know uh, i don't know i mean you may never write a story that people remember like that but you know you got to go for it yeah yeah and all that also explains why pitching is such a horrifying daunting thing to do yes when you're pitching for like a paragraph and someone's like so they I'm sorry. What is it that kills them? And you're like, you know what? Never mind. I'm gonna, right. I'm gonna go choose another profession. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would, I would really love to talk uh, with you some more about your, about your process on this, um, in particular because so, and I definitely, you know, Red Hands is coming out Tuesday. I don't want to get into even remote spoiler territory, so I'm, you know, gonna stay away from all of that. But I was, I mean, from the first line, like was just a just a, a master study in you know a hook and an emotional hook and one that really just reached into I don't know I think that's maybe it's a really common occurrence I don't know but when I saw that about the balloon and it was like oh she you know she she was still remembering the one she'd lost I remember the one I lost when I was like four like I'm still yeah. kind of sad about it so that just like completely got me you know, off the bat. So I, I kind of wanted to talk to you some about that. You know, how do you start with your hooks? Is that where you begin? Or um, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on all that. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Um, and I think that, you know, I could go back through my novels and and discuss the sort of opening scenes, the opening chapters, the opening hooks uh, of them. And it is really important Um you know, you've got to grab the reader, but it doesn't always have to be with something shocking. Um, pardon me. You uh, you know, so the Red Hands opens at a Fourth of July parade uh, in the mountains of New Hampshire in a small town. Um, and what I wanted more than anything was to try to evoke that uh, sort of rusty nostalgia that you get with, you know, because basically when you go to any of those sort of uh, um, events in small towns in the United States, um, you get this sort of what you've got, what you're holding on to there is a mid to like, like 19, you know, 40s to 1970s sort of sense of 20th century Americana, right? Um, and so when I say rusty nostalgia, that, that's what I'm talking about. It's like um, we're feeling nostalgic for a thing that is nostalgia itself. Those parades, those events. I mean, I, I love them as a father, like have taken my kids and stuff like that when they were younger. But um, I think that the sense of community that's so difficult to achieve right now in this country um, is always sort of like 
perfect on those days. Even when you've got, again, like even if it's the shittiest old fire trucks and and the worst looking floats and the, you know, um, you know, the marching band is out of step and the, um, you know, the old guys playing, you know, horns as they as they march, you know, are out of tune, whatever it is, you know. Uh, you know, when you see that stuff in movies, it tends to be polished. You know, it tends to really evoke the uh, the thing in its perfection and its ideal form. And I think that's not real. That's not what we feel. Um, so it's the rusty nostalgia that I think really like gets in my heart. And it's the people who are there together enjoying that rusty nostalgia that I wanted to connect you with bringing you into that scene that opens the book so that you could feel this sort of sense of, um, you know, you've got Maeve, Maeve Sinclair is the, one of the main characters of the book, and she's in this moment of nostalgia, this 4th of July parade, but she's also thinking a lot about the fact that she's about to be moving on from this. She's leaving her town. She's moving into the city. She's got a new job, the whole thing. She's about to leave all this behind. And, uh, <clears throat> and so, um, you know, I, I just want to sort of catch us at that moment where we feel together that the connection. And so um, most of the readers, certainly the readers from, the United States and some from other parts of the world will have the same feelings about it. Um, we'll also see that. And then the idea that she's seeing this little girl who maybe she used to babysit for her and, and, and she's the, the little girl. And she remembers that last year that she lost her balloon and she cried and all this stuff. So we're connecting with this thing that's really universal. Um, because in order to make you feel the true horror of what's about to happen to these people, I need to make you care for them in very short order. Um, so that's, that's sort of the philosophy behind that. And it's not the same philosophy necessarily that goes into the openings of other books of mine, but, um, but it's not uncommon anyway. A lot of times I just like to start you in, a, in an action scene and in a terrifying moment sort of where you're going to hold your breath. But in this case, I really wanted to get that emotional hook in deep first. It was very effective. <laughs> and very different, too. Even from the other two uh, Ben Walker books, it's a very different. Did I get yeah. the last name right? I always fuck that up. You did. Yeah, Ben okay. Walker. Yeah. yeah, it's very, very different from Ararat. And I can't, I've heard other people say I can't speak to Pandora from myself because I haven't read it yet. But. Um, I've been told that it's also very different from that. It kind of ups the game on, well, yeah. I guess I'll just say the weird without going farther than that. Yeah, well, you know, again, you're right. Ararat and the Pandora Room both begin, and a lot of my books begin with a, um, you know, a moment of danger, you know, uh, some moment of action or um, desperation. Uh, just sort of start the um, start the pulse racing, you know, pretty early. Um, and Red Hands does that, but it doesn't do it immediately because, again, I wanted to sort of set that hook in. Um, you know, it's I guess it's about setting expectations. Um, 
with the reader about what they can expect this experience to be like um, as they go. But I think, too, at the same time, um, as a parent, um, all my children are grown now, but the second I see the word balloon, I immediately go, oh, fuck. You know, so so the so the tension yeah. is there right away. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, where's this going? And you know, so yeah, very effective. As Laurel said, that's actually to me one of the more effective hooks I've read in a long time. Thank you. Yeah, it's really interesting because I'm. It's an interesting experience, I guess, is what I'm saying. Because you know, as a writer, I don't. You know, you can never really get inside the heads of other writers, right? Um. But I, uh, I'm always angry with Jonathan Mayberry because um, Jonathan always talks about how much he loves writing. Like he loves the whole thing, beginning to end, the whole experience. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say, you know, they don't love writing, but they love having written. And I'm, I'm generally that guy, you know. I mean, I, I love writing for a living. I love telling stories that's my goal like that was my number one thing that's why i work in so many different mediums is it for me it's sort of the the process of telling a story is the most fun and creating and all of that stuff but writing you know people who are not writers um it, it's draining brain work you know and um you know i hate saying that because it feels so um you know, it feels so like uh, fake to say it, you know, but it really is, you know. And so I, I I find it really interesting when I have those rare days when I really love what I just did. It's so uncommon um, to have written a short story or to have had a day where you wrote a scene or um, to have an experience where you just, you know, where I had such a good time and I really like, and I'm proud of what I, what I put down. And, and I guess the best word for it is where I'm really confident in what I just did. It's such a rare moment and it happens so infrequently. And, and that opening chapter of, uh, of red hands is, is one of those. It's one of those things where I was just like, yeah, that works. That I got that. And I, and I, and I, again, it's, I'm not somebody who like, I'm always like, I'm not judging the quality of my work. That's for the reader. You, the reader judge the quality of my work, but, um, occasionally, and this is one of those occasions I'm just like, yep. Yeah, okay. So that opening scene I love and the rest of the book, everybody else can decide if it's any good. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I totally understand that feeling though. It's like that happens so rarely to me it's momentous and i could actually count it on a few hands mostly yeah. you know <laughs> yeah oh i, I really like what i just did there you know that right. it's like man i those are memorable to me because they are seldom i think they are for a lot of us yeah and, there are a, a couple of stories i've written in the last couple of years i did a short story for an anthology from mark morris called new fears and the short mm -hmm. story is called the abduction door and I had this evil grin on my face the whole time I was writing the book, the story. And I finished the story and I just was so happy. And and even if everybody else in the world hates the story, I love it. I have no idea if people enjoy it or not, but I love it because I finished it. I was like, that felt so good. Um, yeah. And it's just a rarity. 
but it was uh Mm -hmm. i can confirm it as a damn good story um i read i read that and reviewed it somewhere but yeah i loved that whole that whole anthology that was great um and i had something else to say but i commonly lose my train of thought so i'll let somebody else save me here you always (laughs) find it you always find something else yeah Yeah. do you Um, want to go or yeah, that thing. <laughs> um, yeah, um, when you were talking about, you know, setting like the emotional hook and stuff and kind of how it was different, um, like I didn't know at the time that this was kind of tied in because I'm relatively new. I have a couple of your books, but I haven't read any of the Ben Walker ones yet. So I wasn't aware that it was kind of like a um, like a tie in. But how you said that those ones started with like um, – you know, maybe more action scenes and you wanted to go with the emotional for this one. I think you nailed that. But the like one thing I had to say about this book that I was telling uh, my co-host is like, I felt it was pretty much like, you know, you set that emotion and then it kind of carries throughout the story. But also it, you know, you had that scene and then there's like, you know, I don't want to spoil the opening scene, but, you know, there's a lot of great action in that same scene with the emotion. Yeah. And then just kind of that kind of mix carries throughout the book, which I felt, you know, was a really great blend. And like even with, you know, focusing on, you know, the emotion and the characters, I felt like this was one of those books where like pretty much right from the beginning you kind of like put the pedal to the floor and then it was just like that you know from start to finish for me and I thought that was awesome and I just wanted to ask you know a lot of times you know there are some lulls not lulls but you know like you give the reader a chance to catch their breath but I felt like this one it was pretty much high energy start to finish and i was wondering you know if it was kind of difficult to kind of maintain that pace throughout or if it's just something that came naturally um you know what's difficult is so there's two elements here right um in order to write i mean uh, there are writers who can do this right out of the gate for me it's been a long career long process of learning to trust myself um And so uh, once upon a time, I would have felt like I needed to put a lot more um, character work and a lot more um, air inside hands um, because I wouldn't trust that I was accomplishing what I wanted to do with the characters uh, in the middle of such a sort of, um, you know, high energy run. And uh, and it took me a long time to begin to feel like uh, like I could do that, like I, you know, that I that I could, you know, weave the character stuff and and, um, in enough, because to me, the reader has to care about the characters, Um, because if the reader doesn't care about them, then there's there are no stakes. You know, this is the I was just having I'm tangenting again, but I, I was. My son Dan and I um, have been watching the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings trilogy over the past week. And um, we were talking about the relative merits of the Lord of the Rings movies versus the Hobbit movies and how the Lord of the Rings movies, um, you care 
so much more about the characters because of the character work and the air and the breathing that they give those characters than in the Hobbit movies, which are really, really long. And yet somehow you never quite care about, you know, you care about Bilbo and that's it. That's it, Um, right. Everybody else is cardboard. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, for a long time, I felt like um, I didn't trust myself to be able to make the characters uh, tangible enough uh, in short order. And maybe ironically, partly because of the plot and partly because of, um, I think, coming off of Red Hands, the book I've just completed, which won't be out till the beginning of 22, um, is the shortest book I've ever written it's 77,000 words and um you know I feel like in comparison to like red hands is bloated in comparison to this book um (laughs) and that doesn't mean I'm not going to turn around on the next book and have a lot more air and a lot more time with characters and all that stuff it just I think it depends on what the story demands you know Mm -hmm. um it also I think one of the things you might be seeing in Red Hands versus some of the other books is it's got a smaller cast. So when you have a lot more characters to serve, as I did in Ararat and and the Pandora Room and Snowblind, for instance, um, then you have a little bit more space where you have to kind of like um, let the characters kind of lay around a little bit and and drink wine and talk to each other, you know. Um, <laughs> let, let me interject real quick because I do yeah. this all the time um, and sometimes it pisses people off but that book that Christopher just mentioned uh, Snowblind everybody needs to read that fucking book okay I'm done <laughs> yeah thank you oh, yeah I mean I, I'm you know I love Snowblind I think it's um, that was a situation where I had an editor who's been my editor since then um my editor, Michael Homler at St. Martin's Press, we were talking um, and he said, look, I want to do a horror novel with you because I hadn't done a straight up horror novel in a number of years at that point. Um, and he said, I want to do a horror novel with you and I and I want you to pitch me the thing that you would do if you could just do anything you wanted in a horror novel. The one that would feel like the most like you. And so I sat down to do, you know, what I think of as like an ensemble, uh, small town ensemble horror story. Um, And, you know, that's what I love about it. And Snowblind is a great example of how, you know, with the big cast, lots of room to breathe in it. Um, Hopefully still suspenseful, hopefully still scary. Um, Whereas it but it doesn't move like. like red hands and certainly not like the the book I've just finished is called road of bones. Um, and it's not a Ben Walker book. Um, and it's, uh, it's short. (laughs) Um, but anyway, back to what you're saying. Yes, you're right. That, um, the Ben Walker books are all standalones and, and and I'm glad that you read it on its own, uh, because it's nice to affirm that, uh, that you don't have to have read the other books. The the whole point of these books is, they do they do go in sequence, but you should yeah. be able to pick any one of them up and read it and not know the others exist. I was yeah. happy with that when I first because I hadn't re- realized it was a Ben Walker book and I had read Ararat and I saw 
Ben Walker, and it's like, oh, bummer. I got to find Pandora Room and read it like in two days, you right. know. But that wasn't the case at all. So yeah, you pulled that off. Good. Yeah, and I I like the way you kind of. I wanted to ask you kind of about you know the process of making making each one of these stand alone, but you know they're kind of like a series and that they share the character, you know, and maybe the kind of the challenges of, you know, doing like a book that can be read, you know, as a series by people who have kind of started with Arat and worked their way up versus, you know, making it kind of make enough sense for somebody who, you know, this could be their first uh, Christopher Golden book. Cause like Shane said, he, uh, he was the one that told me it was kind of another book. And I was like, Oh, I was like, I didn't know because I, the way it read to me, it works perfectly as a standalone. And I actually was thinking, man, I hope he turns this into a series. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's funny. You know, I mean, I just feel like, look, if you, uh, if you go to a party and you meet somebody that you've never known before, your experience with that person is beginning right then. And you may learn a few important things about them, but you don't need to have known them from the day they were born in order to pick up on their story right now. And so um, I feel like with this character and this series, um, that's my goal. You know, I mean, Walker is evolving as a man, as a particularly as a father, he's evolving. Um, but also as a human being, he's maturing over the course of the three books. Um and that's important to me to sort of have growth in the character, because so often when you have these sort of serious characters, especially a sort of like tough male you know, lead, you never see an evolution in those characters. They stay virtually the same. You know, I mean, and that's kind of the hallmark of those kinds of series. Yeah. And I wanted Walker to, to go through a maturing and an evolution process. Um, but in doing that, I think like, you know, I'm treating each moment where you meet him as your introduction to him. Um, and I've managed to do that without having to tell a lot of backstory, um, which is great. You know, I mean, it's, it's, um, and I think part of the reason that, uh, that that feels comfortable is because um, we're not necessarily carrying uh, a huge load of organization. You know, you learn a lot about the organization that he works for in this book, but we don't have like a carryover from, you know, mission X. Um, you know, we're not picking up the next part of that story. Um, we're picking up the next part of Ben Walker's life. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I think, uh, some, I can't remember the character's name, but, uh, it's either Lincoln child or Douglas Preston has, has a character that kind of reminds me of that where, each book that he writes with that character is a totally different thing. It's a different segment of the guy's life and you don't need to have read any of the others. Cool. Um, yeah. And I think, I think there are, you know, I, I, I prefer that, um, you know, but I also think, you know, I guess if, um, you know, if these books were selling a million copies, then maybe I could do, you know, sort of ongoing sagas and stuff like that. But that's not my, that's not my level of interest. I, I would rather tell personal human stories, you know? Yeah. Well, and because that's, I mean, 
that is that's the story that I want to follow anyways, though. Right. You know, he's, he's definitely got this interesting profession. That's how you get him into these situations that, you know, that, that take off with the plot and everything, but being invested, I mean, and that's kind of, you know, obviously thematically, like what you were talking about before giving air for the characters and everything that is what makes this so largely effective. Um, you know, the, uh, I recently read Tim Wagoner's, you know, uh, writing in the dark. And I thought that was such an effective thing that he said, he's like, well, horror is not about the monster. It's about the characters reacting to the monster. Mm-hmm. And that was just what was in my head so much while reading this. Cause I thought, you know, that was just, I thought that was like really nailed. So I was, you know, I, I was, I thought that was, I, I like that uh, method of doing it basically. Sorry, not a question there. Just rambling. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, Doug Winter famously said a million years ago at a, a Stoker uh, award ceremony, uh, he gave a speech in which he talked about how horror is not a genre. It's an emotion. Um, and it's funny because there's so many times where I've written things that have been published as horror that in my mind are not scary, you know, and I don't think that I have a reputation necessarily as being uh an author who writes a lot of scary stories. I mean, some of them, I, I think the ferryman is scary. I think Snowblind is scary. I think Ararat is scary. Maybe the ferryman, you know, um, but a lot of my horror stories are not necessarily scary uh, throughout, you know, I mean, there are moments of it. Um, but I much prefer to, um, uh, I much prefer to make you feel unsettled. I much prefer to make you feel like you can't trust the ground under your feet. You know, that kind of emotion, emotional response while reading the story, like you're, you're, if you feel uneasy, um, that's much more interesting to me than if you feel scared. So, that's- or, or like um, in that the misnamed by me trilogy, The Veil, um, yeah. kind of really what that made you feel like more than anything is kind of off balance you know what i mean and um unsure of your ground as far as what was really going on there <laughs> yeah yeah well and the fun thing about the veil is you know it's a it's a fantasy series that has horror in it yeah um and so i think at least i hope that what you're feeling when you're reading that is that like um you can't count on this not to become horrifying and unsettling uh, with the turn of a page um which was really fun because you know mm-hmm. it's giving you the sort of fantasy world uh in which the worst possible thing could happen at any moment you know and that's the experience too that's what leaves the reader so unbalanced is you can feel that right from the opening page that the next page could be very mundane or this could go very fucking badly very quickly you know <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it, and it does. It, you're right to feel off balanced with that with those books because um, you don't have any clue where they're going page to page until you get there, which is uh, that's a compliment, not a complaint. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And you know, it's funny because I just don't, you know, look. And again, I don't know how other writers feel. I really don't. Um, but I know that you know when I finish something, even if I enjoyed it. Um, as a writer, 
I don't know until people start reading it whether or not it works. You know, I have no idea. I know it works for me. Um, but, you know, you just kind of cross your fingers, you know, and just like, you know, like in, in, in this book that I just finished, I've got some scenes that I think are going to freak people out. Um, at least I hope they will. But I don't know. You know, they might just go, well, that's weird and move on to the next page, you know. Um, so so you just don't know. And you you have to kind of step back from it and, and uh, you know, <laughs> be free, story. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I release it into, into the wild and, and you know, hope, hope, hope uh, you know. If it loves you, it will come back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's hard, too, to gauge, like, what, you know, because you've been in the middle of writing it. So however you might have felt when you first put it on the page, you know, even if you scared the hell out of yourself, like, by the time you've rewritten it 30 times and gotten notes from an editor and everything, it's, I think it's very hard to gauge that for yourself, you know? It is. It is. And it's also, you know, I, I've been advising people my whole career you know, other writers to say, look, you know, no matter how much you've worked on something, you damn well better be working on something else and have invested in something else <laughs> before you start to get feedback on the thing you finished. Yes. Because, you know, once that's out in the wild and people start reading it, you start seeing reviews or and it, it, it sells or it doesn't sell or, you know, or if you've, if it's being sent around to potential publishers and if it sells or it doesn't sell, Boy, you better be working on something else you've already invested emotionally in because you need to cut yourself, you know, you, you need to move on from your emotional yeah. connection to this thing that is finished. <laughs> yeah. Because, and, you know, if it doesn't receive the the uh, the welcome you hope for, you know, you just have to be prepared for that. So. And it's and also. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say it's also really, really hard for like a new writer when I, the first time I put something out there and somebody said, hey, I want to publish something of yours, um, I did that, wrote it. They said, yeah, this is beautiful. We'll take it. And then I sat there going two things. What the fuck next? And <laughs> are they, do they know who they just were talking to just now? Because I'm nothing, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, but, no, but, you know, look, this is the thing, too. Look, I mean... Uh, I can't stress enough when I talk to writers that, like we are not, I have met writers who will remain nameless, who are arrogant pricks, arrogant pricks. Um, most of the ones who, and I will say horror has less than its share of them um, compared to other genres. Um, but I have, uh, I've met so many authors who are arrogant pricks who think they're special because of mm -hmm. what they And some of them do what they do well and some of them do it poorly, but they think they're special because of what they do. And I try to say to people all the time, it's okay to feel that what we do is special. I do feel that. I feel like what we were, I'm incredibly fortunate to have been able to make, to eke out a living doing this for 28 years. Um, and, you know, since I was young, you know, I was really young when I sold my first novel. And, um, and that's it. I'm incredibly fortunate that I've been able to like hustle my ass off and make that work. Um, 
And I feel like what I do is special, but I'm not special because of what I do. Neither are any of you guys. I mean, this is, a, you know, and I try to get this through to people because that that idea that there's a massive distance between a writer who's just starting out and a writer who's been doing it for decades uh, is false. It's not true. It's not real. It's an illusion, you know, um, and so. Uh, if a story is good or if a story is is okay and you can somehow like you know <laughs> horn swoggle some editor into publishing it anyway more power <laughs> to you you know i mean it's just like it, it's it's about getting your work out there it's about taking the next step writing the next thing um getting it into readers hands finding those people who enjoyed what you wrote um and if those people can pay you for it <laughs> that's that's the goal right um, you know but but you know again this is like i'm glad you said that because it's not you know um it's so important to uh for, for writers to understand that like it doesn't matter if it's your first sale or your 1000th you know and and i say i say that to the to the people who've made a thousand sales too you know like yeah you know, good on you. It's great to have that longevity, but you know, it's still the the game is still the same. You're telling stories that you want people to read and enjoy because you love telling stories. And and, you, and you know, go ahead. No, please. I'm a bad interrupter. So is Laurel. She's no, and I I, I ramble. <laughs> so go ahead. Um, what were we talking about? Sorry. Um. Uh, about yeah right um as a it's good going into that i guess i don't know where i was going but um as a new writer knowing that hey yeah what i do i feel special about this but it doesn't make me special at all you're right about that it just makes me someone who got lucky enough to be doing something that he loves to do and other people actually sometimes enjoy yeah look i think and i'm gonna sound you know ridiculous here to some people but storytelling is magic i mean let's let, let, let me just lay that right out there you know if you can put words on a page like words on against a white background or spoken words in an audiobook or whatever it is with no pictures anywhere and and you can get people to be transported into a world like inside their own imagination where they feel an emotional connection where you might make someone nervous or scared or make them cry or make them feel joy or, or teach them something they didn't know before or get them to think about something they never thought about before. That's, that's magic. Like that's real for me. Like that's, that's magical. And so I do believe that's special. I think there's a special place in the world for stories and storytellers and imagination. And uh, and I really believe that. That said, you know, it's not the it's <laughs> it's not the, it, the I'm not even saying this right. It's the magic, not the magician. That's all I'm saying. Exactly. That's I agree 100 percent there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I mean, it is. I think you're really just right about that too. And like, in how you phrase it. And it's one of those things, you know, I've, I've not been doing this for very long at all. Um, you know, so it's not like 
I'm some expert or anything. And and one thing that I, I love very much about our community is how uplifting everyone is and how encouraging. Um, you know, mostly what you run into is people who who want you to succeed, who are happy to give you tips or, you know, lift you up or, or do whatever. Um, and it's always, to me, it seems like a fine line between making sure people have appropriate expectations because, you know, like you said, where it's like if you if you walk into it feeling like this one thing that you've, ri- you've written is your ticket to success and that this one thing is going to change everything for you and everybody else, that's just going to disappoint everyone involved, you Absolutely. know. And but but yeah, if you can if you can step away from it and look at it more in terms of this is a start, um, you know, what can I do with this? And yeah, like you said, definitely keep working for because otherwise you will drive yourself absolutely insane and do nothing but refresh your email. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, my career has been such a roller coaster. I mean, um, you know, I mean, I've had things that have done well. I've had crashing disappointments um, and that cycle has continued with such insane regularity. I can't even begin to tell you, you know, so you have to, you know, you know, you have to be thinking about the next thing and you can't let yourself be dashed against the rocks and not get up again. You know, I mean, it's been constant. I mean, and, 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 you know, part of the job is to project, uh, you know, to project this image of, um, of consistency. Right. But I mean, I've had so many like crushing disappointments and crushing failures that have gone along with the things that I feel have been successes, you know? Um, and that's just, that's just the way it goes. You know, I mean, that's just, that's part of the job. Um, and also like, you know, you're you're entitled to an opinion whether or not you've been doing this uh, for six months or 60 years. Um, maybe you don't have as much background to form that opinion as somebody who's been doing it for 60 years, but you still are entitled to your thoughts and you know all of that. And also, I want to say something about horror as a community. Um, in any community, you know your family your community of friends, your community of neighbors, your town, whatever it might be, um, you have people who suffer from a variety of mental illnesses. This sounds like a weird tangent, but it's really not. Um, You know, I have, I I suffer from depression and anxiety and so many writers do. Um, And there are people who are just uh, whose wiring is not makes them less suited for the kind of trust and faith that the community relies upon to thrive. Uh, And so we do see um, things come up. You know, we see people um, come up who are, you know, broken stairs or who, um, you know, are trying to manipulate people around them to take shortcuts to success that don't exist. Um, there are no shortcuts. Uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've met so many people who are trying to take those shortcuts. So when we talk about the community and how wonderful it is, and it is wonderful, um, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that uh, not everyone within it is wonderful. But that doesn't mean that, um, that it isn't a supportive, nurturing community, a generous community. Um, my agent 
is fond of saying, I've been working with him for a long time and he's been in the business for decades. And he, he represents authors in all genres. And, and uh, he's fond of saying that, you know, uh, the horror writers make the least amount of money, but they're the first to offer it to you in a, in a pinch. God, that's know. so true. Yeah. And, um, and it's true. And it's true. And so, um, so I really like, I, I feel, you know, I've been, I've been trying to sort of help nurture the community in new England anyway, over the last seven years or so. Um, and I think, I think we've got a great community here. Um, and online we see, you know, we see shit happen, you know, um, we could bring up any number of incidents that we, you know, and talk about them. But I think the important thing is that people don't, uh, people don't start losing faith in the idea of a supportive community of, of lifting up your fellow writers, uh, of saying, you know, there's room for everybody here. You know, uh, you know, the, the cliche is a rising tide lifts all boats, but I believe that, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when Joe Hill comes out and, and has massive success in horror and then Josh Mallerman and Paul Tremblay come out and they have big success in horror. And then this year when we've seen uh, Silvia Moreno Garcia finally really break through. Yeah. And, uh, and Stephen Graham Jones finally really break through and all of that stuff. It, uh, it helps everyone because, you know, publishers think, Oh, and readers think, huh, maybe I actually really like horror. <laughs> yeah, they decided it's acceptable, yeah. um, and it almost damn near requires a big five publisher to make it that way. But, but yeah, there's that those are important to us because they open doors for us. Um, you know, you well, too. Though you didn't mention yourself there, and you fall right into that category too. Um, I don't. You know, I mean, look. To be honest, I always feel like I'm. Um, uh, I always feel like I'm this weird sort of tangential creature um, because I've, I've worked in so many genres, even though horror has always been my home, like horror people are my people. Um, but also because uh, I've been around a long time. And, and again, even though I'm only 53, but I, my first novel was published in 1994. So, um, you know, I feel like it's... Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry. I, uh, <laughs> my, my wife, I forgot I didn't have my microphone. We figured. <laughs> did, did I tell you, did I tell you guys, uh, did I say anything bad about you guys? No. no you said you <laughs> yeah, it was beautiful. We appreciate it. <laughs> I do love you guys. Um, probably not as much as her, but you know, <laughs> what, what I did is I muted my own fucking sound and left the mic on. It's like Mr. Brilliant. <laughs> Usually I mute my mic and talk. <laughs> well, you know, it's full of Jeffrey too. So. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. I just... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that was. I think that is especially the way you phrase that there about, you know, just as far as the community goes and the and the um the the natural occurrence that there will be people within it who, you know, as you said, maybe are suffering from from something that makes them just not 
viable for that kind of uh, of community. And I, 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 I do think that's a good way to look at it because I, I, I dislike, you know, I mean, certainly if someone's out attacking everyone, then we want to just kind of, you know, put a stop to that because I, I'm definitely not a fan of bullying. Um, but I'm also just not a fan of piling on for no reason. I mean, I think, I think that we can, I think that we can just kind of, you know, make decisions and protect each other and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, to, with certainly we've all seen things happen within it, but it's also the the overwhelmingly vast majority of the interactions that I have are incredibly positive. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you have to try to, you know, uh, you know, look, when I was basically a kid and starting out with this, I had conversations with um, authors who had no reason to be kind to me, no reason to be supportive or helpful to me, but who were, really supportive, you know, and, um, and you pass that on, you pay it forward, you know, I mean, and it, it doesn't cost you anything to lift somebody else up, you know, I mean, I'm, um, I, I don't want to name names, but, um, you know, there's a, I'll say that my, my dear, dear friend, Rick Howdler, who passed away a number of years ago, um, you know, one of the, one of the greatest guys, one of the kindest people, had reached out to a um, an acquaintance of his who had you know mutual friends and stuff like that who was a a relatively well established uh, director in L.A. a horror guy um, basically to say look I've written some screenplays would you be willing to read them and you know give me some feedback maybe you could like if you, if you think they're good enough you could pass them along and by the way I've had similar conversations a thousand times. Um, and some people just ignore you and some people are helpful. And, um, I try to be helpful with people when they reach out to me, but, um, this guy actually said to Rick, um, you know, I can't remember exactly the way Rick quoted it, but it was something to the effect of, you know, why would I help you? What does that do for me? Why, if you're, <laughs> you're my, you're my competition, why would I help? And oh. he said it like baldly right out there. And I was just like, when he told me about it, I was just like, God damn it. What an asshole. Um, because I, I just, and I just don't understand that, you know, I mean, I, and I never will. I never will. I, yeah. And it's, I mean, because one thing I, one thing I would understand, you know, as you said, if people don't respond or something like that, people have to draw boundaries for themselves. They have to, you know, take care of their own families, their own work, that kind of thing. So I would, I would never hold it against anyone for not helping, but to, but to respond in that fashion, that's just, that's detrimental to everyone. It's totally unnecessary. And, you know, look, I, uh, I get emailed about blurbs and stuff like that all the time or messaged about them. And I try and, you know, but a lot of the times, um, I just am too overwhelmed. I've got too much on my plate. And I say that, I've got too much going on. I'm sorry. I just I, I have to put a moratorium on this stuff right now. You know, best of luck maybe next time or whatever. And that's fair, you know, and, and people do the same thing to me. It's totally fair. Um, but and, you know, and, and you come to somebody at random out of the middle of nowhere, you can't necessarily expect them to jump up and down and say, yes, please send me your manuscript. I want I can't wait to read it. And you know nothing about the person. Um, but. 
you know, by and large, this is why, by the way, I, I can't wait for us to be able to have conventions again. Yes. <laughs> because I think that, you know, being able to do virtual conventions is great for um, those readers who want to just watch a panel and, and, and are interested in the interaction and the information and all of that that comes from it. Um, but if you're a writer who is um, relying upon the networking and schmoozing that goes on at conventions, the virtual conventions aren't doing shit for you. Um, and so I, uh, I, I look forward to those things being able to happen again. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Is, do you, oh, sorry, go ahead, Rich. Oh, no, I was, if I was just going to ask about a different topic, so I didn't want to cut you off. Yeah, no, go for it. So, um, Christopher, I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, I know it's different for everyone. There's kind of no, you know, no sets of rules for this sort of thing. But I know you edited a couple anthologies like uh, Seize the Night and Dark Cities, just to name a few, which I really enjoyed uh, both of those. But um, I just wanted to ask, you know, kind of kind of as an editor, maybe for either writers who are just starting out or writers who, you know, might have already been submitting for a few years like as an editor you know what are some tips that you would give to uh writers who are looking to submit short stories whether it be to like anthologies or uh, magazines um you know so firstly i would say about anthologies like that the openings are going to come few and far between because unfortunately um the i've been so upbeat during this conversation but the downbeat part is that selling an anthology to a mainstream publisher is so hard. And so almost all the anthologies I've done have been full before I even tried to sell them, you know, because basically in order to sell them, I've had to get a lineup of authors that the publisher will be excited about. Um, which is why Jim Moore and I did this book, The Twisted Book of Shadows last year, um, which was all uh, blind submissions, no, no reserved slots. And that was great. But if you were submitting to an anthology like that um, or any any open anthology like the one um, Gabino Iglesias is doing right now, the uh, the Halldark um, uh, anthology, which mm-hmm. is such a great idea, um, or, uh, you know, a magazine, I think for me, it's just about, well, if you're doing a magazine, the key element there, and anybody will tell you this, is read the magazine. Read the kinds of things that that editor is likely to buy, firstly. But more than anything else, I just think you've got to think about a way into your story that isn't going to be what everybody else is doing. You know, um, the, the thing that immediately comes to your mind is not likely to be different enough. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I just feel like... Uh, it's about using your imagination. It's about starting into the story strong. When we were going through our 700 submissions for the Twisted Book of Shadows, it stunned me how many stories we dismissed within the first page um, because it wasn't well-written enough or because uh, it didn't uh, lead us into the story well enough. It stumbled at the beginning. And there were a couple stories that stumbled at the beginning and then got really good. 
And fortunately, they were good enough that we we continued reading. But there were lots of stories that we, you know, we just like, nope, nope. Um, so it really it's about the solidity of the writing, you know, um, and that's a whole other thing. I mean, I've taught courses on on uh, on all of that. Um, Jim Moore and I used to do these um, seminars on uh, writing better, <laughs> basically. And um, yeah, so I wish I had more advice for you, but I think that, you know, the key element there is understanding to whom you are submitting. Huge. Yeah, yeah no question about it. Um, even to the point, like when I first started out and I knew my shit was going to get rejected and I was going to cry and pound my head against a wall. Um, my first four poems got submitted to markets I knew for a fact would not fucking publish me so I could just get that out of the way. You know, <laughs> and it hurt way less that way. <laughs> well, also, um, it's also good because sometimes you'll get useful feedback. Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes sometimes somebody will take the time to give you constructive criticism that will help you the next time. And that's good, too. The other thing, by the way, that I want to say to so many writers, um, if you've had a story that's been rejected all over the place, if you know, and it's now become a trunk story. Um, uh, I'm telling you right now, if it hasn't been good for the last 20 people. You find that 21st person and it's good enough for them, they're not good enough for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just feel like if, if 20 different editors have told you this story isn't good enough, then when you find a 21st person and they say this story is good enough for me, maybe you don't want that story to be published. You know, well, I just, you know. Go ahead. <laughs> no, see, I mean, certainly within, you know, with that iteration, because I, I think it's like, you know, a lot of times you hear when you get a rejection, like it's just not right for this particular market. Correct. You Correct. know, but yeah, I'd say after a certain amount of time, there's there is merit in uh, sitting it down and taking a look and thinking, all right, what's wrong with this? Right. You know, which is why mm -hmm. mean beta readers are a fantastic asset in your in your writer's life. I yeah. Yeah. Also, beta readers, don't just get your buddies. This no. is the thing that drives me crazy. If you, uh, if you are having people beta read for you who are not at least as good at this as you are or at least as smart as you are, then you are using the wrong beta readers. You know, I say the same thing about reading. Like, you need to read better books. <laughs> you know, like... Uh, <laughs> This is and this is for everybody. Read better books. Yep. You know, so this is the thing. Like you want to have inspiration. You have to, you know, I'm not saying don't continue to read the stuff you love. That's fine. But bring in other things, you know, read aspirationally, you know, and the same thing with who you're having beta read. I mean, you know, um, if and this is a, this is this is tough love. But like you look around the people at the people who beta read for you. And if they're if they're just a reader, are they smarter than you are? If not, they should be your beta reader. And if they're also a writer, are they at least as good and hopefully better at this than you are? If not, they shouldn't be your beta reader, because how are people who are not better than you or at least as good as you going to help you improve? 
<laughs> just, I'm loving this, and I'm wondering if, I mean, do we put together a test for this? Like, thank you for agreeing to beta read. I'd like you to take this short right. No, you know. Come on. Everybody, no, I, no, I do. You it's ask just, a beta read for you. You know. I mean, you yeah. know, I mean, you, you know, if you don't admire that, those people, you shouldn't be asking yeah. beta I agree. I, I everybody that beta reads for me is somebody that I think can make my work better. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's that's all I that's all I strive for in a beta reader is someone who will be harsh with me. Right. And you know you know again like you want somebody who's going to be able to be constructive. Yes. You know and also somebody who's got some insight. You know, and they don't need to tell you how to fix something, but they need to be able to recognize when something isn't working. Yeah. 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 And I've lucked out there. I've got some really, really, really intelligent beta readers um, uh, who have actually taught me a lot more about grammar than I thought I fucking knew. Are you just saying that to suck up to them right now? No, not at all. <laughs> I could give a shit. I don't suck up to anybody. <laughs> well, what's your, do you have, uh, what are your suggestions for newer writers when they're looking for beta readers? I mean, as far as like, do you, do you have certain people that you tend to exchange with or, um, um and again, like I don't always use beta readers. Um, and, you know, what I when I was first starting out for years, when she had time to do it, my wife was my first reader. And the best thing about having her as my first reader was that she would ask me the most important questions. You know, she would say, well, she would ask me whatever the question would be. And I would explain something to her. And she would say, well, honey, that might be what you mean, but it's not in here. And that's actually, to me, the most constructive thing a beta reader can do for you is to tell you that you're not getting across the thing you hope to be getting across. You're not doing it well or you're not doing it fully, you know. Um, but for me, you know, I tend to rely on other writers. Uh, I tend to rely on them only in crisis. You know, when I'm having a crisis of confidence or whatever, I'll reach out to them and say, ah, my hair is on fire and I need you to read this and tell me if it's working and let me, then I, then I want to ask them questions. You know, did this work? Did this work? If this isn't working, would you do you think it would be better if I changed it? To, you know, then you can have a constructive conversation because what we're doing, we do in a vacuum, you know. Um, that is very so, true. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I like that back and forth idea on it, too, in particular, rather than, you know, just handing somebody a full manuscript and waiting for them to come back with you to, you know, with with notes on the whole thing instead of, you know, these are the areas that I'm concerned about. Let you know, let's, right. let's talk about whether they work. Right. And sometimes it'll be, you know, um, I'll tell you a, <laughs> an embarrassing story, but again, this is not something I was necessarily going to know. I, I wrote this, uh, my one out and out science fiction novel was this uh, military SF thriller called Tin Men. Um, and I've never served in the military, but I've written military characters a lot. And um, so I got Weston Oaks to read it for me because Wes is a military man. And, uh, you know, Wes got back to me. And one of the settings in the book was um, an embassy in Syria. And he got back to me and he gave me certain specific notes. Um, but one of his notes was, I'm really glad I read this book because um, 
the Marines protect embassies. <laughs> and I had the army, you know, <laughs> and I'm not Good sure. I, I'm not sure my editors would have caught that. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't have any confidence mm. that they necessarily would have known that. And I should have known it. And, um, you know, but it was, you know, yeah. it was good. It was but good. What, here's a thing about editors, too. And I love editors. I'm not dissing them. But if you think you're going to trust an editor with your with doing the research, remember that they let the smell of cordite slip, slip by all the time. Yeah. There's not been cordite and gunpowder in decades. Yeah, it's <laughs> fun to say that because uh, actually Bracken McLeod found, uh, caught that in one of my things within the last couple of years. Uh, oh, I know. It was a few years ago. I did a Sons of Anarchy novel, and he he um, beta read that for me, and um, and he caught he caught me out on that. And I'm sure that there are other works of mine in which I've I've mentioned that. Um, but uh, but fortunately, he taught me my lesson at that time. But it's yeah. But it's not. That's actually the m- most minor of mistakes when you figure that every crime novel you've ever read read said the air was thick with the smell of cordite right you know? yeah <laughs> well i didn't know it wasn't cordite either and i i, I love firing guns so i'm gonna yeah. luckily i don't say it a lot at the range they would look at me strange but <laughs> smell, smells like gunpowder laurel <laughs> my um i i, I wrote this my first novel of Saints and Shadows introduced this character, Peter Octavian, and there were seven books in that series. And they span many years. You know, it took me many years to, to finish the series. And there is a an absolutely massive, monumental continuity error between the end of book two and the beginning of book three. And it took like 16 years before somebody caught it. <laughs> like, and somebody, somebody emailed me and said, has nobody ever noticed this? And I actually like, was like, that can't be. And I went and looked at the books and I was like, Oh my God, this is like the Mandela effect. This is, like, yeah. <laughs> this has always been like that. How did 16 years pass before anybody noticed that? But there you go. So, well, the books are immensely entertaining, though, so I think people just probably slid past it. I hope yeah. so. <laughs> I, ne- I never noticed, but I'm going to go back and look now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe people just went dumbass and carried on reading, you know. <laughs> I feel like that's what my readers mostly think anyway, so that's fine. Yeah, they're going, oh, I hope this guy's suffering from imposter syndrome because he's a fucking fake. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding me we all are yes no kidding <laughs> i really feel like i really feel like the writers who say that you know oh, i don't ever have you know like imposter syndrome i just feel like well you've got to be up your up your your head up your ass i mean i just can't i can't imagine you know um you're compensating for because that's bullshit that's right, <laughs> right you know or they're not very good i don't know yeah i don't yeah. <laughs> But like you said, too, there, I mean, not many in the horror industry, but there are some arrogant fucking pricks in this, too. So, you know, yeah, sure, for sure. Guys um, who drop shit and go, I'm great, you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one thing to like 
go out there and self-mythologize, which I think, you know, some of some of the people in our community do to greater or lesser effect. And that's fine. That's marketing. That's publicity. It's how Arnold Schwarzenegger made himself. Um, and it's I, I really feel like and I'm I want to say this carefully because it's not an insult in any way. You know, this Neil Gaiman is the king of self-mythologizing. Yeah. Uh, and but he lives up to it. I mean, Neil's an amazing writer, one of the one of the greats, one of the all time greats. And I'm I'm, you know, mean that 100 percent. But, the you know, like his whole persona when he first came out and he was writing Sandman and his first novel was coming out with um, Terry Pratchett, Good Omens and all that stuff. The you know, the whole like all black leather, black leather jacket, the whole, you know, it was a. It, it had to be a conscious choice, right? I and mean, I don't know that for a fact, but I'm, you know, it feels like it had to be a conscious choice. Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't make you an asshole or arrogant or whatever. That's that's self-pathologizing. It's a, it's a conscious choice about how you're presenting yourself to your potential market, right? But there are people who believe their own bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> And that's the difference, you know, that like and and but that's not even what I was talking about before, though, you guys, you know that. I mean, like, oh, yeah, I'm talking about the arrogant pricks. You know, I'm I'm talking about the people who are um, sexually assaulting or sexually harassing people yes. or. Um, yeah. Who, or I'm talking about the uh, <laughs> I'm talking about the person who told me that they were being sent death threats and um and pictures of uh um of dead women bloody dead women um and all of this stuff and and then i asked them to forward me some of those emails and um the email that i did get forwarded was fabricated by that person that the whole thing was made up to get attention um and and so i'm talking about that you yeah, know no kidding. Community, the community doesn't have space for people who don't want to be a part of it. You know? Yeah. Uh, so that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I think, too, that there are too many good people in this industry who, like you say, all of us have some kind of fucking mental illness, I'm pretty sure. Um, but there are too many good people in this industry for people like that to last very long. But... Right. Sadly, they keep popping up anyway. And, and you know, the thing is that too many, uh, you know, look, I think, again, I mean, you know, mental illness is a spectrum. Uh, you know, it's a potpourri of, of conditions and experiences. Um, and unfortunately, it makes you vulnerable. Right. Yeah. And so um, the reason that I I always want to try to. Uh, you know, I, I always worry about those people who are the broken stairs, who are um, harmful, uh, because there are so many vulnerable people in in the, in the community um, that are easily preyed upon or easily hurt uh, or injured by that kind of behavior. You know, um, so anyway, but but again, by and large, I think the community is uh, nurturing and uplifting, and and everybody wants the best for each other yeah i agree i agree um 
And I wish I could sit here and talk to you all night long, but I'm going to have to turn into a pumpkin here in a few minutes and go make dinner. Uh, if I, I don't really care for eating much, but my wife does. And she'll <laughs> kill me if I don't fix this. Who doesn't care for eating? What the? T- <laughs> well, I have to smoke a lot of weed first, and then I'm all right with it. Oh, okay. All right. yeah. so. he, just, he just drains the blood of the you know lambs. Exactly. <laughs> I only feed at night. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Christopher, it, you are amazing, man. You're an amazing writer. You're an amazing person, and you're an amazing thinker. Um, and I hope I, we can I, have I, you. But thanks. <laughs> I do. And I and I hope we can have you back here over and over and over again. It was great. Happy to do it. Had a great time. And we need to, uh, you you have a, a virtual release party, right? On December 8th, is that right? Well, thank yeah, you. December 8th, um, uh, in Belmont, Massachusetts. I'll be in conversation with Almakatsu. It's free. Um, so uh, all you have to do is go register, but it is free. Excellent. Awesome. Well, yeah, everybody should attend that. And you should also grab a copy of Red Hands, whether or not you receive chocolate chip cookies as a reward. <laughs> no one's promising anything. But exactly. whether you get them or not, it's absolutely worthwhile. Thank you. Cookies. Go ahead. Cookies are better. That's, you know, it's better <laughs> to also have chocolate chip cookies. It is. <laughs> but you can say that about anything. Like prison, not great. But if you have chocolate chip cookies, not as bad. Prison <laughs> suck, chocolate chip cookie, good. Now back to bad prison. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. I love you guys. Christopher, thank you for being here. Um, Thank you all. Can't wait to read the next one just based on the title. And uh, like Laurel said, everybody pick the book up. It's um, brilliant, in my opinion. Yeah, agreed strongly. Thanks a lot. Love you guys. All right. Thanks thanks for coming on. Have a great night. Thanks, Christopher. See ya. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.